Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning into this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Bob Holman. On December 3rd, 2019, Bowery Books simultaneously released two new books of poetry by Bob, written 50 years apart, Life Poem and The Unspoken, serve not only as bookends to a life immersed in words, performance, and the avant-garde, but they also show the evolution of an artist, an art form, and a downtown art scene that's gone from Allen Ginsberg to Lou Reed to Ellen Miles to Mahogany Brown. He's also a New Yorker, which is what I wanted to talk to him about, how poetry and the passion for the arts exists in a time of a pandemic. We had a really moving conversation about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Bob Holman. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Nice to see you, Scott. Yeah, it was great. We spent time together in New York uh, a couple months ago, several oh months back. Oh my goodness, it sounds, it seems like a, a, a different world. It, it is another world. It's not right? even it, time anymore. It's worlds we're counting. Yeah, I wonder, is that, I mean, as a poet and an artist who's written a lot of verse, inspired a lot of poets, I mean, what, what do you think this does for, and you're, you're in New York, you're at ground zero. I mean, you I'm are- an epicenter. Yeah, I mean, what do you think this is going to do to to poetry to people who are engaging in 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 this kind of art form? Is it is it is it making people strangely like produce the work because of the pain and 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 just the uncertainty? Yes, but not everybody like me, for example. No, um, but you know it's it's as individual as the poets are. You know, I often say, you know, people say to me, hey. This guy, when he reads, he sounds like he's a, he's bored with his own work. Isn't that awful? I say, well, wouldn't you like to hear William Carlos Williams read his own poems? Even if it was like this cranky, creaky, old New Jersey doctor voice that he had. So uh, um, some people are writing a lot, I'm sure. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm working on a few projects, which is something that poets always do do you know we've got this the idea that we're just solitary folk out there like emily dickinson writing something down and sticking it in the drawer and locking the drawer with a key that has a purple velvet ribbon on it that can, yes that's another kind of poet can do that but uh i'm involved with projects where where poets are collaborating and uh using our verse to stay afloat and now finally Two months into it, and I'm going to use time instead of worlds right now. Two months into it, artists are starting to say, hey, wait a minute. You know, let's use our power if we can and see where we can jam ourselves into the political system. You know, it's interesting because you just made a move there. You said, I'm going to switch from world to time. And I think, you know, T.S. Eliot. When he finished his dissertation at Harvard in philosophy, turned it in, never defended it, went and became a man of letters and a banker. And he, he said something once that he said, the problem with philosophy, I realized, was philosophers don't understand their metaphors. 
And he says, no, he says, no poet can ever live that way. He's like, if you're a poet, you have to understand exactly what your metaphors are. And that it is interesting, right? Well, I, I would go a little bit further. I'd say that philosophers understand their metaphors and poets don't understand their metaphors. They live their metaphors. You know, philosophers understand the underpinnings. It's like, I think in a way, philosophers uh, straddle lawyers and poets. You know, lawyers are all about the meanings of the words. Poets are all about the meaning of the words. But the only thing is, poets live those metaphors and philosophers can talk about them. That's why Plato was able to kick the poets out of the polis, you know, because, you know, they he, he couldn't believe that they were um, – were, were able to, they were sophists, he thought. They were saying things that weren't true. Uh-uh. They were saying things that were true. He was just a philosopher who was looking for the underlying basis instead of just saying, hey, look, the the orangutan is a teacup. And believing <laughs> that, you know? So, it's funny. It's good to talk like this. This is what you can yeah, do during yeah. a pandemic, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, this, you know, it's interesting because Elliot was, when he was in graduate school, the big thing was, you know, does language mean anything outside of itself? And so it was this sentence that they would debate, the present king of France is bald. And did that mean anything? Because, of course, there was no king of France. And, and you know, and so Elliot just said, well, my goodness, there is a king in France and he's bald after all. And he, he was commenting on that years later. He said something like, what I realize is even um, illusions have reality. <laughs> they have illusory reality, right? I'm writing <laughs> like, that down, by the way. There is a king of france and he is bald now you are, you actually set a rhyme back there i'm gonna have to can we rewind this tape right now uh, because <laughs> you know that's a great yeah of course there's a king of france and of course he's bald you know why because you just said it that's why that's elliot's point we're sitting around this graduate seminar and even though we're th thinking about this thing doesn't exist and we're debating whether he's like we've made it exist we've conjured him up with our conversation around the table. And this is the power, right, of language. It's the power I mean, of language. Power. You know, in a time when you can't touch, we got to use the way we touch without touching. And that is with talking, with language, with words, you know. And um, so that's why poetry always works. It's always been with us. You know, the, the, the way that um, the, the language... You know, I like to say language is the essence of humanity and poetry is the essence of language. It's why people love to say they don't understand poetry. And yet it's in their everyday lives. They wrote a poem to their girlfriend when they were in eighth grade, you know, and boyfriends, both of them, because everyone is bisexual. I forgot to mention that. And all right. <laughs> It opens up you know, um, for, 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 for romance and for fashion. Yeah, romance and fashion. And, uh, you know, but I did turn down the, uh, the whatever the name of that tobacco company was when they wanted me to do something. So it's not for advertising, you know. <laughs> Although, you know, did Ginsburg work for an advertiser? I know that Warhol did, but I think Alan did too, you know. So, um, but... These are, these are days. The only poem I have written, Scott, goes like this. It's called Done, and it's D-O-N-E. Of course, you all your listeners know uh, that I'm actually referring to John Dunn and his poem, uh, No Man is an Island. Um, oh, I hear the siren right now. 
So I'm going to go into it. Done. Ask not for whom the siren wails. That's you in there. Mm. Mm. You know, of course, Dunn said, ask not for whom the bell tolls. Um, it, it tolls for thee. You know, no matter who is dying, that's your, you're, you're, you're part of, the, of that. We are all connected. We're all part of the main, as, as he said, part of the continents, part of the main. So, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty Buddhisty for a, a metaphysical Christian poet to get to. But I think we all got to get and there it, now. We do feel that. Don't we feel all connected in this way? That we're all lonely? Yes. And I've thought I feel connected. Also, I found myself thinking about decisions. And I think like, okay, maybe I'm not uh, in the vulnerable, the most vulnerable demographic. Although who knows? Now we're finding people are more vulnerable than we think and young people. are. But I always think about how am I loving my neighbor? Like I've got it, like my decisions just don't impact me in this thing that the people I love uh, that are decades older than me, who are precious, they're precious kind of vessels containing so much of the beauty of life that I learn from. Like I'm with them in this, right? Like every, every person that's vulnerable, uh, we're in it together with this thing that is spreading faster than we can think. And we just, it's so scary because right, we don't know anything about it. Um, you know, the, uh, that's great. Well, I am vulnerable. I'm 72 and I have a, a lung condition. Um, so I'm doubly ver- vulnerable, you know, um, and I'm feeling some of the love now. You know, I'm also feeling, oh, my goodness, you know, I can let the air conditioning guys come in here and fix the air conditioner because this house gets so hot in New York house. I guess you, you, you know, I'm sorry. I am doubly vulnerable, but it's still, I need the air conditioning. They come in, but my girlfriend can come in. I haven't, you know, we, we go for six foot walks, um, six foot, six feet apart with masks on every once in a while. She'll tease me and drop her mask down. I'll see her face, you know, but uh, you know, this is, but as far as I, I appreciate your words, because I don't with digital. And of course, you know, we talked about this uh, the last time, you know, this is third consciousness. It's only the, the second time in humans existence that we have changed our way of thinking and communication. First, we changed from talking to writing. We added writing in the printing press, ultimately, so which made the distribution. And now we're changing from writing and printing and the printing press into digital. Now, with digital, everything is out in the open. Everything is transparent. Everything is there in, in uh, you know, in, in Google. And old folks aren't listened to. Ah, it's really true. You know, they, you know, in this rush to a new consciousness, the old folks uh, are at home, and they're they're not uh, they they aren't part of the dialogue the way they should be. I think you know. I mean, I'm I'm think I'm fit. I may be you know seventy two with a lung condition, but I I don't I I, I think I think I'll I'll survive when I get it. I assume everybody's going to get it eventually, you know. But uh, um, this idea that old folks can can be of use, which in orality was the basis of orality was because it was the old folks who knew what happened the longest to go, and they could tell you where to plant the potatoes, 
you know, and old folks can still tell you where to plant the potatoes. It's just that they can't, they don't know how to use the talking thumbs on their smartphones so that they can sit around a table and instead of talking to each other, we can text each other. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say this because I I often think like, you know, some scholars argue, and I think there's probably something to this, that Augustine almost creates the inner self, right, with his book Confessions. You know, he's, th- he's psychoanalyzing himself. And now we can't get through a day without thinking of, well, there's the, the me that presents out there in the world, and then there's the inner me that's psychoanalyzing myself. But I think in the digital age, we almost have a third self now. It's I have my inner self, I've got myself walking around, and I have the projected avatar self. Online. So it's a whole, now we're managing. I never thought of that, but you are exactly right. And those of us who haven't been born into the third self, um, we, we don't care so much about it. You know, we don't have so much invested in it. We invested so much in the second self into writing and that kind of analog thinking, you know, where you had to dig for the information, but when you got it, you had been through this journey that let you know what was true. You could use your mind to decide what was true, not take the thing that pops up to, on the the top of the the, uh, the Google sheet, you know, who paid the most. Everything comes down to bottom line at this moment. Um, it is, uh, though I think that, uh, you know, I think this is in the pause we are, we got time to think about that. And I think we are thinking about it. You know, you're thinking about it. And uh, Mahogany Brown, who's the new uh, director of the Bowery Poetry Club, she got hired the day after the club closed for, for the pandemic. Um, one of the first things she did was have a founder's poetry reading with old farts from around the country who were working, you know, who have been working in the field forever. And that was really sweet because there's so many terrific young poets who really know how to do the digital and they're really pushing in the political edges. You know, this really super, but to have a moment for us old guys, that's okay. You know, too. I, I, I mean, I have numerous friends who've gotten out of New York Right. And, and there, and I don't know, some of them might not come back. I mean, yeah. And you're a guy that loves the city. I mean, you have a long storied relationship with it. Like, is this a sort of, is this like watching an old, I mean, it's almost like you're watching a big giant old collective friend have the virus. You know, the whole city's got the, right. The, the, the city is, Um, right. It doesn't, yeah, I I get what you're, you're saying, but the city ain't sick because you can't, you know, you can't put the city on a, uh, on a ventilator. You know, but what the city is, is it's empty. You know, the city is pausing just like the citizens of the city are pausing. Um, the boy, these sirens, you know, they really here on Bowery and Houston, you know, you can, you know, they're we don't get the planes overhead anymore. But we get the sirens on the street, and that's about it for traffic. Oh, there's more traffic now than there was. But I'm getting to the point where it's the it's the buildings who that line the street who are the beings of the city now, and they have taken this kind of stoic uh, uh, appearance where they are empty and waiting 
to be filled up or empty to see what will happen next. It's like a sand dune or the Sphinx or something, you know, it's like the, the forces of nature are all we have to change what's going on here. The people no longer are throwing their gum on the street, on the sidewalks and making the, uh, making the, um, those little marks on the sidewalk that everybody wonders where they come from. The homeless own the streets and to watch them shuffle, you know, to see when we have a really hot day that they, you know, insist on keeping their winter coats on, you know, to, 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 to learn what the, the, the occupants are as, as we, the privileged ones like me get to stay in our nice apartments, although we don't get to leave them. And then down in the subways, the brown and black folks who are the essential workers who get paid the minimum wage get to travel on the subways, which run fewer and fewer and close up at night so that the homeless are kicked off of them. You know, it's not a pretty picture in the city, but it's not like um, it's sick. It's like it's um, in this moment of pause, of fermata, as you have in music, you know. And meanwhile, the, uh, the, the class is the underbelly of this, of this culture that has, you know, de- developed in a way so that the bottom line is everything. And if you fall below that bottom line, folks, good luck to you, you know, so. Yeah, because the, the, the pandemic has really shown, the corona pandemic has shown, right, where some of the kind of, uh, it's almost like a stress test, right? We're checking your heart and your body. Like, it's shown us a little bit of what is hurting in society. Like, it's exacerbated the income inequality and racial inequalities and discrimination it's it's right shown on us. the streets it's right there in the hospitals it's right there in the death statistics you know it's right there you want to see what we've done here's what we've done of course and it's also that because of the um political falderall you know we don't have communication with our brothers and sisters in china so that we didn't learn from them you know and and, and likewise you know now it's a you know then then it was a battle over who is going to get the masks and the gloves you know it's like you know and and let the states bid against each other i mean where is the common good where is our humanity in this you know humanity is out the window folks and uh, you know, it's uh, never it's, it's so the question is, and this is where the poets, let's hope we can get our act together. Artists in general need to, to become a voice in this uh, multilayered dialogue. You know, I, everybody's now talking about what Roosevelt did out of the uh, depression with the WPA to put the artists to work, not only gave money to the artists who couldn't get it anywhere else, but it also allowed the artists to speak out and be heard, whether it was the murals for public works or whether it's Zora Neale Hurston collecting stories or whether it's Orson Welles directing plays in Harlem. Um, it was the artists took a place the way they did for me in the late 70s with the CETA artists program, which, again, is another thing that was swept under the rug. The Comprehensive Employment and Training Act put in New York City 300 artists to work. And it really was my learning place to see that poets had a place in the, in the, in, in the polis, in this, in the civic, uh, goings on. Every, what we happened was we got farmed out to different organizations, institutions, schools, senior citizen homes, museums, you name it. And, uh, 
and the, you would get paid by the federal government and you'd work for these, for these organizations, these people. And there was every organization can use a poet. That's what I discovered. And no organizations can pay for a poet. So, you know, maybe we can figure out a way to have the culture that everybody lives in. Everybody lives in culture. It's just that that word to people because because of our American individualism and anti-intellectualism, um, that word seems to sound like something that belongs to everybody. Everybody has part of this culture. This 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 country has the greatest culture. Our jazz that we invented, our movies that come out of Hollywood. Come on, guys! You know the television that you watch. You know the comic books that you read. All of this is part of our culture. It ain't all opera fancy dancy. It's part of your lives, and it deserves to be treated with respect. Uh, of course, we got to stand up and deserve that respect. Uh, you know. I had a guy on the podcast a, a couple of weeks ago, Ed Watts. He's been on the show a few times, and uh, he's an ancient historian, University of California in San Diego. And it was funny because I reached out to him. He's like, I have a book that deals with pandemic. I just sent it to the publisher. And he's he's looking at how pandemics in ancient Rome would, would sort of devastate them. And then he says the danger with pandemics was the rise and decline narrative, he calls it. You know, every every kind of Roman politician says, well, that you know, we've declined and now we're going to rise from the ashes. And they, and he says the problem with the rise and decline narrative is you always have to find people to blame for the decline. You always got to have, and, and, so, and there's always people that get othered and there's always people that get bullied. And, and sometimes it's, it winds up being quite violent and or, or people's rights get marginalized. And he was looking at like Marcus Aurelius and how Aurelius, when he had this problem, didn't blame anybody. He kind of <laughs> he, 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 he let slaves become citizens. He brought gladiators into the army. He didn't. He said, we're all in this together. And I mean, isn't this maybe the power of what the poet can give us? Because I think we are so tribal. Every, all this stuff, I've had lots of people on the show the past few weeks, psychologists, gallop, uh, uh, pollsters and things that have said, it's almost like we're living two different pandemics, right? The red state, blue state. And how do we get to the place where maybe the power of language could get us past these tribal ghettos and get us to see I and thou, right? One another, see each other as in it as one. Boy, yeah, you're asking the right questions, you know, because, you know, why do people vote for politicians who are going to screw them over? You know, why do people vote for fascists? You know, I mean, do we have to go into some kind of psychological daddy shit to uh, to to flush that out of our system? You know, I, you know, I've always said that, you know, that you don't teach people what to think you teach people how to think and then everybody thinks you know it seems pretty simple but people don't they like the easy way we're humans you know take uh you know take take that guy who wants to throw them into jail and let him build his own swamp that is swampier than anything that was there before go on, let's do that you know let him roam around with the you know the the west wing at night and try to find somebody to tweet to, you know, I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm hoping that the power, we, we need some language power going on here, you know, and uh, we can, we can find it. We can find it. Do you want to hear a poem that, uh, that, that just got sent to me? 
Uh, it's from Carmen yes. Vardegas Brown. She is a New Yorkan poet, New York, Puerto Rican, lives in the Bronx. She just retired from being the principal of a, of, a, of a school, of a high school, public high school. I mean, it's the worst job in the world to be the principal of a high school in the South Bronx. Go for it, Carmen. And where is she sheltering in place? Thailand, obviously. I mean, she just happened to be there and then it happened. And she said, well, here I am. I'm retired. I'll just stay here, you know, and. You know, it's a great, wow. there are all these great, there's great stories still need to come out. But Carmen wrote this poem for her beloved New York. And uh, it's called New York is not a ghost town or boom, bang, boom, bang, despierta, despierta, high peaks, rascacielos, stores, money, 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 Clubs, human misery, miseria. You seduce me with your fast-paced walk, horny, greedy motherfucker, my love me a more. Times Square, dirty pretzels overpriced, everything, carajo. Gazillion restaurants, fresh coconuts in Las Bodegas, Italy in the Bronx, Puerto Rico's Consul Guaguanco, living in the streets while celebrities to, pretend to hide their diamond glittering. United Nations in the house, while the South Bronx burns down, what now? Horny, greedy motherfucker, mi amor, my love. Your dirty streets from Broadway to 125. The New York Times howling at El Diario, La Prensa Nueva Yola. You're bleeding now. Don't cry for me. Yo soy New York to eres mi los cinco burros y en control. Carmen Bardigas Brown, April 2020. That's beautiful. How did she, how did she send that to you? Like, did yeah, she send email. you like, via Actually, email we were, or? she, she called me via WhatsApp to tell me what's up. You know, WhatsApp is so great. We don't use it here, you know, but, it, but it gets, it's free phone calls all over the world. What's the matter with it? Right, right, right. No, it's amazing. No, it's a great app. And I, I do think it is, as we were talking earlier, the irony is like, we're, um, we are, I was talking to a, a, a minister in Arizona, very, sharp guy and he said look look i'm thinking for the time when people are are more sheepish after this and are not going to want to gather as much and he's already thinking ways of using the technology so that you know people are in fact he's in phoenix so he's like they're thinking of channeling their chapel project into an outdoor chapel so people can because it's warm and people but i just think about that it's, it, it's we do have these resources like what you're saying it's not the same as touch but we do have like you know i i just noticed i've been depressed and lonely and what's gotten me through it's trying to pick up this microphone every day and and searching for meaning and hope and knowledge and you know and and having people share art and insight in in the pathos of the pandemic and that has gotten me i find like it, it lifts my it lifts me out of the depths and despair of the weight of my own sort of isolation and i think we do have we do have these things that that enable like you and i it's not the same no. as when we sat down in that conference room in brooklyn but it, but it's great. I mean, even just talking with you, I, I listening to you read her poem with such vigor and passion. It it, it lifts the spirit, you know. And, and we can at least see each other and, and have a, a human yeah, interaction. So true, and and thank goodness for digital. You know, I mean, it really is. Well, on the one hand, it is, um, you know, like I say, the instant info fix does not bring along with it the new way of thinking of educating yourself that you, that we need to be able to discern 
in the uh, you know in the info fields you know but it certainly has allowed us to communicate have poetry readings online and to uh, have these zoom meetings which some of which are even seem to be working <laughs> And, you know, I mean, they can, it does flatten it out. And my, my girlfriend will not do them. You know, she, when I have dinner every Saturday night with my pals out in San Francisco and, uh, you know, it'd be great if she'd join us, I get to see her, you know, but, uh, she, she doesn't like the zooms, you know, and people don't, okay. You know, th- 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 people wouldn't get on an airplane. So, you know, with the, but like the minister is saying, how we come back, this is if we come back, you know, how we come back, it's going to be like piece by piece. Down, down below me is the Bowery Poetry Club. And when we open, we're going to have to uh, have half as many people, I'm sure. You know, it's going to be a process. We're going to have to, and every step we live through. And how do we decide what it is? Is it, it is the whole thing just to keep the hospitals, you know, calm down. The you know, flatten the curve means to lengthen the curve too. So, um, you know, and if you're a doubly, you know, vulnerable person like me, do I? How much longer do I have to wait? You know, I mean, I let the AC guys come in here. I pick up food from the delivery guys when I help the local restaurants. You know, which is one of the projects I'm working on. I'll just segue. What the heck? Um, we're, um, with Ram Devanini, who's my film producer, we are doing a project called um, "Poetry Is Like Bread," I'm, it's, which is a Neruda line. And uh, when we can, we'll take poets into the restaurants around New York City, their own restaurants, their home base, right? They, so we'll find poets like that. And the poets will read a poem that is associated with that restaurant. We'll talk with the people who are running the restaurant, see how they're getting back. So we'll integrate the poetry and the bread um, uh, with, the, with them. I think it's going to be a great project. And we already got funded from the National Endowment for the Humanities. They're handing out a few grants now, not a few, they're handing out, you know, small grants to do projects around this. That's the beginning of the WPA. Don't tell Trump that they're doing this, you know, but, um, yeah. So I said what I'm, t- what I've really just sort of maneuvered around Scott is that, the the after pause. I don't think we're there yet at all. But people, are, you know, but the government does. You know, the economy is more important than people's lives. Yeah. When do you think New York will be back? I mean, because it's it's obviously the most affected city. I mean, when do you when you think this? I mean, it, if, if I mean, is it going to be the all summer? Oh, yeah. Sometime down? in my lifetime, you know. Um, I keep talking about my girlfriend. I might as well say her name, Esther Ballant. Esther has a she, the 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 shutdown started on the sixteenth of March in my life, and her play was set to open on the nineteenth of March, which she had been working on for years. All about her life, you know. She's from the squat. Her parents started the squat theater from Hungary, and it was amazing, amazing musical. So uh, now they have rescheduled this for September 9th. Nobody knows. You know, nobody knows. But let's, you know, if they do, then maybe they'll allow half the people in. Or maybe nobody can come in and it will just be done um, over the net. It will just be streamed. But... 
The musicians, will they rehearse on Zoom? Won't they be able to get together in a room and hear each other like that? You know, these are all wonderful questions that we're, you know, not yet have begun to answer. I'm sure there are some, you know, the Broadway music, Broadway shows can't answer this at all because of the scale of that. You know, how, I don't know. It's really, you know, but you ask me when, and I'll tell you this, within my lifetime, that's when New York will be back. I want to stay to see what it becomes because it won't be what it was. And it never, you know, every day New York is new. They say you can't eat at every restaurant in New York because by the time you've eaten at the restaurants in New York, there are new restaurants in New York. You can't even eat at all the pizzerias in New York. Though probably these days that would be a good project. Eat at all the pizzerias in New York that are open during coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, that it is an interesting thing that you say, I think, because it's it's we will change and and things like this traumatic events, right, change us. And and what does Hemingway say? All of us, um, the world breaks us all. And um, some of us are stronger afterwards in the broken places. Yeah, Papa, Um, you know, and then he goes out with his shotgun. Come on, Papa, you know, movable feast. He called it life. And yeah. yeah we- well, Bob, I appreciate uh, you talking with me. I appreciate your work and I appreciate your resilience and courage in, in, in ground zero. And uh, you're in my thoughts and my prayers. And- Scott, same appreciate you. you. It's, you know, I wouldn't be able to say it unless you were asking me. And I also want to beg the forgiveness of my girlfriend whose name I mentioned. And I swore I'd never do that, but I couldn't help myself. So. Well, I'm. I yeah. hope her play opens up. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, my Best friend. Best of everything to you, man. May the Floridian sun shine down on you with love. All love. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media, share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.